Man, what a blessing uh, to be with you guys. You know, we were praying today in the group, and, um, you know, I just felt led of the Lord to, to pray, um, remarking on, you know, you know how it is <clears throat> when you get, when cousins get together, they haven't seen each other, maybe they live across country, maybe, maybe they've never even met, but th- there's this magical thing that happens when you get cousins together, and um, they just pick up, like, family, you know, why? Because they are family, you know, and, uh, hold on, I gotta get my... My notes here straightened down, and um, and I feel that way when I come here. You know, it's just it's just family. It's uh, you know we're uh, we're all just you know brothers and sisters in the Lord, and and, and we have the Lord Jesus in common, and uh, and so it's neat to be here. Um, so uh, as Mike said, my name's Ted, uh, and uh, I'm from Southern California. This is my first time to New Jersey. What a blessing to be here with you guys. Um, and uh, really, my wife and I, Brenda, are enjoying it. Um, so I, um, uh, what do I tell you about myself real quick before I get in the message? So Brenda and I have been married 37 years. Uh, we think it's going to work out, so there's that. <laughs> um, there's, uh, we've got three adult children. We've got 10 grandchildren. Uh, and those of you that have grandkids, you know they're the best. You'd have had them first if you'd known they were that good. <clears throat> so... Uh, <laughs> We just did a parenting conference the other, last week, and somebody asked us a question, how do you discipline a two-year-old? And Brenda's like, or a one-year-old, or I don't know what, 18-month-old. Brenda said, I'm a grandma. Don't ask me that question, because you, you just take them out for ice cream is what you do at this season. All right, we're going to be in the, the book of Ruth today, if you want to open your Bibles there, seventh book uh, in the Old Testament. So uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, right there. So... Uh, if you open there, let me pray. We'll get right to work, huh? Father, thank you for this time together. Uh, we do ask that you'd meet us here as we study your word. Um, it's living and it's active. And uh, you promise that uh, it is more than able um, to pierce through. And, uh, and moreover, your word says that your, your word is what gives us life, that it waters... Um, it waters the, the, the plant, metaphorically speaking, of our life. And, and while our natural plant might produce thorns and thistles, the word of, of God causes this unnatural fruit that, that will spring forth um, because your word is truth and it's life. So, Lord, we pray today you'd make us not only to be hearers of your word, but to be doers of your word by the power of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so my kids tell me that I know everything about nothing, um, which is to say that I, you know, historical things, uh, events of the past, um, I, I know unusual details about things only because I geek out on some things. And one of those things, uh, as I was putting the message together, I actually, there's a story that's associated with the 1956 Rose Bowl, and it kind of, it came to my mind. Um, UCLA was, was playing Michigan State, and uh, there were seven seconds left in the game, and, uh, and the score was tied 14-14. And so the Michigan coach decided he was going to send in uh, the kicker to attempt a 41-yard field goal. Well, apparently, they had a couple of kickers on this team. One of the guys uh, did the punts, and the other guy kicked the extra point attempts. And so the coach sends in a guy by the name of Dave Kaiser to take this kick. And he normally was their punter. He usually didn't kick field goals. Well, 
Anyway, then that'll have a bearing on the outcome of the story. So, so anyway, he lines up, 41-yard field goal, kicks, kicks the field goal. They, they make it. They win the game. They're carrying Dave off like a hero. Everything's amazing. But the coach has occasion to say to him in the melee, he's like, hey, I noticed everybody else was, was watching the ball after you kicked it, but you didn't even look. You weren't watching the ball. Well, here's what he came to find out. And this, by the way, is why Dave Kaiser usually didn't kick field goals. He was blind as a bat. <laughs> the guy wore glasses, obviously couldn't wear glasses, you know, on the field. And so when he lined up to kick that field goal, he couldn't see the end zone. He couldn't see the goal post. He couldn't see, you know, 12 feet in front of his face. He was just, you know, profoundly uh, myopic. He was nearsighted, Right. Well, it serves as a metaphor to life when you think about it, because life is that way for, for us. That, that the Lord knows the future. He knows everything from the beginning. We don't. And so when we go through the, 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 fee, the football field, metaphorically speaking, of life, so much is a blur as it pertains to our future, right? And... Um, and so that's kind of the, the setup that we have here. We're going we're gonna to read about a family that's just making their way through life. Family not unlike your family, not unlike my family. Just hitting the regular bumps and in, in, in potholes of life and trying to figure out how to get from A to B. And so with that, we'll pick it up in the book of Ruth. Uh, now it came to pass, verse 1 tells us, in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine... In the land, there's our pothole. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. Now, Bethlehem was a region that was filled with wheat and barley fields. It was literally the breadbasket of the region, and that's how it got its name. The, the name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. But verse 1 tells us there's a problem in the house of bread. There ain't no bread, right? That's a problem. And, uh, and now God had promised Israel <clears throat> that there would, be all, there would always be plenty of food in the land. That they have more than enough. But his promise came with a condition. Deuteronomy chapter 11 tells us, the Lord speaking, the land you will soon take over is a land of hills and valleys with plenty of rain, a land that the Lord your God cares for. He watches over it through each season of the year. <clears throat> if, verse 13, conditional clause, if you carefully obey the commands I'm giving you today, and if... You love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and soul. Then he will send the rains in their proper seasons, the early and late rains, so you can bring in your harvest of grain, new wine, and olive oil. And he will give you lush pasture land for your livestock. And you yourselves will have all you want to eat. But be careful. Don't let your heart be deceived so that you turn away from the Lord and serve and worship other gods if, conditional clause, you do... The Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut up the sky and hold back the rain. And the ground will fail to produce its harvest. And then you will quickly die in that good land that the Lord is giving 
to you. And Israel, they did obey for a while. But the time came when Israel stopped obeying God, and the Bible refers to that time as the days when the judges ruled. And the book of Judges concludes with this verse. Judges immediately preceding the book of Ruth. It concludes with this, with this verse. It says that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now in Hebrew, the phrase that everyone did what was right in his own eyes, it's best summed up by, by this American term that you're all familiar with and that's the term shooting from the hip. Right? How many here have ever shot from the hip on something? How many, how many have ever shot from the hip? Right? Where you're eyeballing it. Right? And, and this is the thing. That's, this is probably a better term to think about it. You're eyeballing it. You're eyeballing life. You know? Guys, you ever done a project? You eyeball it? Right? Brenda and I, when we were first married, um, we, uh, we were hanging pictures in our, in our apartment. And, uh, and so what did I do? I eyeballed it. And Brenda comes behind me, and, uh, and she says, it looks a little bit off. I'm like, what do you know? You know? <laughs> what do you know? And, and she's like, and, and of course, I come to find out, we've been married 37 years. She knows a lot. She's usually right. And doggone it, she was right. We, you know, I, we're, we're working on this, and when I eyeballed it, it was subjective to me. It looks all right. And it was subjective to her. No, I don't know. I think it's a little bit off. So we got the objective ruling out, the tape ruler, and, or the tape measure, and <clears throat> we measured it. I was off by a quarter of an inch. Quarter of it. Now, it's a 10-foot wall, right? So you get away with it. And sometimes when you eyeball things, you get away with it, don't you? You're like, eh, looks good enough. It's good enough for my house, right? And, and it is good enough, and you can get away with it. Sometimes you eyeball things, and you don't get away with it, right? Um, case in point, there's, there's an event in 1975. It's called the Tasman Bridge Disaster. And just by what it's called, you know it doesn't turn out so well, right? The ship's captain was approaching the Tasman Bridge, and he eyeballed it. Normally, they went under the main, uh, the main span. You know, there's different pillars holding up the bridge as it goes up. And they go under the two main spans, the highest point. And for whatever reason, it was blocked, and he decided he'd take the next span over. And he eyeballed it, and obviously he missed it. And it was a disaster. There were, you know, multitudes of people that were killed, both on the ship and on the bridge as it collapsed because they, they plowed into it. <clears throat> and so that's the case in our text today, that, that the people in the time of the judges, they're subjectively eyeballing their way through life and just shooting from the hip. And... Um, as the story begins, you know, here you've got these people. They're not objectively living their lives according to the Word of God. And so we're, we're introduced to this subjectively-minded couple, Elimelech and Naomi, here in our story. And a simple word study reveals that that name, Elimelech, it means God is king. And uh, the word Naomi, the name Naomi, it means pleasant. And listen, when God is king of your life, Everything is pleasant, right? King David wrote, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And <clears throat> it's interesting, the word pleasant here in, in Psalm 16.6, 6, 
It means Naomi. It's translated Naomi. It's actually the, the word Naomi. So, so the lines have fallen for me in Naomi places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, you guys are familiar with King David's life. Was everything always pleasant in David's life, yes or no? No, it wasn't always. It wasn't puppy dogs and butterflies for David all the time. You know, he hit hard things, sometimes had to deal with it, right? But, but still, hey, he knows. He's got a future and a hope. He knows where, it's going, where, where his life is headed, and, and he knows that ultimately God is good, as we sang this morning, right? But the problem is, here in Ruth 1, God isn't king in Elimelech's life. Why? Because this is the time when everyone's doing what was right in their own eyes, and that includes Elimelech, right? He encounters hardship. He eyeballs the situation, and his subjective solution is he's going to run off to Moab. Now, here's why this was a bad idea. Moab is a place, it's only about 50 miles from, from uh, Bethlehem. If you go to, the, to Israel, you, 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 uh, you actually can see Moab off in the distance there. Um, but it was outside the promised land. Uh, and worse, it was a land where the enemies of Israel dwelt. Uh, Moab got its start back in Genesis 19, and if you're familiar with Genesis 19, you know that this chapter is filled with depravity. Uh, it begins uh, with, <clears throat> well, it's describing the immoral conditions that were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, right, where there was rampant sexual sin going on, uh, there's fornication and homosexuality, and there's rape, and just an overall blatant disregard of God going on there in the beginning verses of Genesis chapter 19. And it was so bad in, <clears throat> in Sodom and Gomorrah that God judged them for their sin. Uh, rained down fire and brimstone, wiped them off the face of the earth. And, um, but in the process, God spared this, this, this cat named, named Lot and, uh, and his two daughters with him. And so as Genesis 19 then uh, continues and Sodom and Gomorrah is laying in a smoking heap of rubble, you know, behind them, Lot and his two daughters, they take shelter in a cave in the mountain. They're far away from civilization. And uh, in that cave, Lot's two daughters, they get the bright idea. They're like, hey, you know what we need around here? We need some kids around here. But, but it's, a, it's a desert isle kind of situation. It's Lot and his two daughters. And so what do they do? They decide they're going to get dad drunk and they're going to father children with him. And, and, and so they do. And Genesis 19.37 says, The firstborn daughter bore a son. Won't even dignify the girls with a name, by the way, the Bible. But the firstborn daughter bore a son and she called his name Moab and... He is the father of the Moabites to this day. So that's how Moab began. And in the years to come, as Moab appears in the scriptures, uh, what you see is that they are an absolutely depraved people. Um, at the heart of their depravity, number one is the denial of Almighty God. And number two, they worship pagan gods. Uh, Numbers 21 and Jeremiah 48, uh, God is condemning Moab uh, for worshiping the, the god uh, Chemosh or Chemosh. And, uh, and, and Chemosh was associated with the goddess Ashereth um, and the Ammonite god Molech. And, um, and so uh, Ashereth was a god of fertility. 
um, Molech was really ultimately the god of war who promised to deliver peace, victory, freedom, right? And, uh, and so Chemosh is kind of believed to have emanated uh, from these two. That was sort of their belief. And uh, the way that, that, that Chemosh was worshipped was by human sacrifice. And what they would do, historians tell us, is that they would take a bronze statue and they would heat it up red hot and they would sacrifice babies on this idol, this molten idol to, to this god Chemosh. Wicked, abominable. We see an example of this, by the way, in 2 Kings chapter 3, where you have King Jehoram, the king of Moab, and he's facing military defeat. And so what he does is he takes his firstborn son and he offers him as a sacrifice to ensure victory. These are the people of Moab. And this is why the scriptures declare Chemosh worship as the abomination of Moab. And by the way, what you might not realize is Ashereth and Molech and Chemosh are still worshipped today. There's millions of people worshipping the goddess of sex and sacrificing their babies on this altar of freedom. We live in that age. Well, not only did Moab have a shameful past, but they also had an oppressive present, right? Judges 3.13 says that Eglon, the king of Moab, uh, he attacked Israel. He enslaved them for 18 years. 1 Samuel 14, 2 Samuel 8, 2 Kings 1 depict Israel continually battling Moab. And so Moab had a shameful behavior, uh, shameful behavior historically, uh, and they had oppressive behavior presently, but the worst thing about Moab and their gods is how they influenced Israel spiritually. Um, and you see an example in Nehemiah chapter 13 where there's many Jews that are intermarrying uh, with the Moabites, and in the process, they are then worshiping their gods. And, um, and, and another example in Exodus, uh, uh, or example rather in, in 1 Kings 11, it's, you see Solomon, he's, he's taking wives and he takes Moabite, Moabite wives. He, he builds altars to Chemosh because of his Moabite wives, wives. And God had warned them against this very thing. Exodus 34, be careful God says never to make a treaty with the people who live in the land where you're going. If you do, you're going to follow their evil ways and you're going to be trapped. And instead, he says, you must break down their pagan altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles. You must worship no other gods for the, the Lord, whose very name is jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. He says, you must not make a treaty of any kind with the people living in the land. They lust after their gods, offering sacrifices to them. And they are going to invite you to worship them in their sacrificial meals. And you will go with them. And then you will accept their daughters who sacrifice to other gods as wives for your sons. And they will seduce your sons to commit adultery against me by worshiping other gods. You must not make any gods of molten metal for yourselves. And here in our text, what do we see with Elimelech's sons? They marry Moabite women. And really, what did he expect? 
What did he expect? Hey, let's leave the house of bread. Let's leave the promised land of God. Let's go dwell with the Moabites. Well, he's sticking his kids in that pool. Like, you know, if you're looking for a girlfriend, where are you going to find her? Where you're hanging out? So really, what did he expect? And this is in my notes. It's just a freebie for you. But, but, but I deal with this as a pastor all the time. We, we, we live in Southern California. And actually, where I live is the Bible Belt of Southern California. So, so it's not as bad geographically where we live. But you hear California, and instantly you're thinking, man, crazy politics, horrible liberal people. And for the most part, you'd be right. And so I have people in my church every day. They're like, you know, we're out of here. And, I, and I'm like, you know, I, I, well, somebody's got to stay in Sodom and Gomorrah. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm sad that... <laughs> <laughs> Not in Sodom more, I would say somebody has to say in Nineveh. There you go. God sent a prophet to Nineveh. That's a little more biblically accurate. So someone's got to stay in Nineveh, right? I wish I could go with you. But they leave, and they, they don't give a care to where they're going to go. They really don't look at, hey, are there good churches where I'm going? Is there, is there a good pool where I'm going to stick my kid? Or am I hanging them out to dry where I'm going? And, and inevitably, I'll have people call me, and they'll come back, and they'll be like, man, there's no good churches out here. Would you plant a church out here? I'm like, I'm planting them as fast as I can, but I don't know. I can't, you know. And, and so, you know, this is some of you. You may be facing a situation where you're thinking we have to relocate. I would say, please give earnest attention to, to, where, to where you're going to go to church and where you're going to fellowship and all of that. And, uh, and on behalf of Mike, I'd say stay here. you got a great fellowship here. you got a solid Bible teaching church here, a pastor who loves the Lord. Um, and, and I just want to brag on your pastor for a minute. You can, get, you can tell a lot about, about a pastor just by spending time in his church with his people. Uh, you guys are well-fed. you got a pastor who loves you. He's a great shepherd. He is earnestly committed to raising you in the Lord. Uh, you guys got it good here, spiritually speaking. And so thank you, Jesus, for that. So what's he expect? He moves to Moab. His, his sons marry Moabite women. Why? Here's why. Because he eyeballed the situation, right? And he shot from the hip. Elimelech did all the factoring, and God never factored in. Let me politely ask you, I realize I'm new here. Maybe I don't have the right to ask the question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Does that describe you? Are you somebody who's characterized by eyeballing the situation and by shooting from the hip? See, because for Elimelech, here's what, I, here's what I reason. In all likelihood, he probably never even looked that far down the road, right? I think he made an immediate decision based on his immediate circumstances. He's like, hey, no bread here? Where can I run? See, for Elimelech, I would bet you dollars to donuts, it, 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 he has, well, his life probably is like this. Problem, solution, problem, solution, problem, solution, problem, solution. He's a, he, he's a guy who just thinks like that. But he never stopped to ask why, and he never stopped to ask what? See, why do I have this problem? What's God doing here? Why is there no bread in the house of bread? See, if he had asked that question, he would have realized, look, there's something a lot deeper going on here, Elimelech. Something you got to tune into. See, because in the Old Testament, when you faced a famine, it was, also, uh, it was often evidence of God's discipline 
because of sin. And God warned of this. Leviticus 26, God said, I will punish you seven times over for your sins. I'll break your proud spirit by making the skies as unyielding as iron and the earth as hard as bronze. All your work will be for nothing, for your land will yield no crops and your trees will bear no fruit. God warned the same thing in Deuteronomy 28, 15, and, and 23, and 24. And in 1 Kings 16, 19, what we see is when he sent another famine on Israel for Baal worship, right? That, that, that you know, this is kind of how, how he, he operates. And here's the point. Elimelech might have seen a much different outcome had he reflected and repented instead of reacted and running. Might have seen a much different outlet in his life. Now, let me just, let's be honest here. Who here's ever felt the temptation to run? Right? You get in a situation, you've got, you're tempted. Maybe, hey, maybe even today, maybe you're like, good grief, this guy's been reading my mail. It's the Holy Spirit. Here's the point of application. As you work your way down the field of life, it's filled with uncertainty. The goal is blurred. The goal is obscured. You don't know the future and the immediate is causing you, you know, stress. Who am I going to marry? Where are we going to live? Where am I going to find a job? How am I going to pay my bills? And because life is filled with uncertainty, God's word is filled with promises. Paul told the Philippians that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. Jesus told his disciples that God takes care of the birds of the air and he clothes the grass of the field. And, and if that's how he cares for them, how much more is he going to care for us? But see, when things are blurred and obscured, it's not always easy to trust in God's promises, is it? Proverbs 14, 12 says there's a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. And that's what happens when we do all the factoring, but God never factors in. There's just no life in it. Here's the takeaway question for you, maybe take a walk with today. How does God factor into the decisions that I'm wrestling with today? I'd encourage you, take a walk with that. See, we have to make a choice. Will I trust God or am I going to trust in myself? Right? Will I reflect and repent, or am I going to run? Right? Because, because essentially always when, when we're seeking to mitigate our circumstances, this is the idea when it comes to, to obeying God. These are the questions i got to ask. And so we've got God as king, Elimelech, and we have pleasant Naomi, except that God isn't king. And for Naomi and her family, the lines haven't fallen in pleasant places for them. And so now Limelech's dead. And next we read that his sons die also. Look at verse 5. It says, then both Malan and Chilean also died, and so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Now, here again, the meaning of names is really important, right? Elimelech, God is king. Naomi, pleasant, right? Malan and Chilean. Their names literally mean sick and dying. Who names their kids sick and dying? That's what I want to know, right? The man who's, for him, God isn't king. That's who names his kids sick and dying, right? David Guzik said this. He says, sometimes we think we can move away from our problems 
But inevitably, we find that we just bring them with us. Don't you know that that's true? Haven't you experienced that? No matter where you go, you find that your problems just continue in a different place. And so now Naomi's all alone. Poor gal. And in this day and age, in this culture here, it was, it was about the lowest place you could possibly be, about the most disadvantaged place that you could possibly be in the ancient world, right? And so what she do? She makes a decision to return. Look at verse 6. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as uh, as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. And so she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And and they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why uh, will you go with me? Are, Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husband's? Turn back, my daughters, go, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, if I, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? I mean, what, by miracle miracles, if I get married and have kids, like, you're going to wait 18, 19 years for, 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 for that? Uh, would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So Naomi decides here, she's, she decides, look, I'm going to return to, to, to Bethlehem. And along the way, it dawns on her that she's got nothing to offer her daughters-in-law. And so, so she's like, hey, you guys need to bail. You need to go home. Warren Wearsby, he maintains, and, and I think I might agree with him, that Naomi's actions at this point, that they don't really su- suggest spiritual repentance on her part so much as they suggest a situational repentance. Um, in other words, Naomi here seems to be making her decision in the same way, in the same fashion that Elimelech made his decision. It's more about finding food than it is about finding fellowship with God. And, and really, that's not so much conjecture if you, if you kind of look at verse 6 there. Because what she says basically in verse 6 is, look, I hear what God's doing in other people's lives. He's not doing that in her life, right? By the way, there is power in your testimony. Let me just say that. She is hearing what God is doing in other people's lives. We, 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 we had on, uh, the, at the Connect Conference, if you were here, you know, uh, one of the things uh, that Pastor Mike did is he had uh, Frontline Faith, which was people sharing testimonies of what was happening in the front lines of, of their walk with the Lord kind of thing. So powerful, so encouraging. I know many of your stories because of that. Just incredible what God is doing and what that does if you're faithful to share your testimony. It strengthens people. It strengthens people like Naomi, right? Because here she is, you know, your sin, it catches up with you and it, and it, and it, it costs you. And the Bible, you know, tells us that Satan takes cap- people captive to do his will. 
And what happens in the lives of people, I was just talking to, to a brother named Mike today. He was to give me, you know, a bit of his story. And, uh, you know, his testimony is basically what so many of our testimony is, that the Lord beats us up and we get to the place where, you know, I've had my fill of, of having been taken captive by Satan to do his will. And I discover that it's empty, that it's lifeless. Maybe some of you, you're discovering that today. That really what, what because Satan's this great counterfeiter and he promises you life and he promises you, you know, it's going to be all, you know, puppy dogs and butterflies and you realize it ain't. And what I thought had life in it is just death and bondage. And this is where my, Naomi's at right now. Her, her, her deal is si the, the situational cost of her bad decisions have caught up with her. And so she's not so much spiritually motivated to return to God in the promised land. She's, she's, she's more situationally motivated. And, and, you know, and by the way, if she was spiritually motivated, then, then why on earth would she encourage her daughters-in-law to, to stay behind in Moab? Right? Because if she was spiritually motivated, she'd know, hey, if I leave you here behind in Moab, that spiritually that's not going to be good for you. Why not, if she's spiritually motivated, why not say, hey, come with me. We're going back to God's promised land where you can find the true and the living God. Um, we see in these verses we've just read, she's thinking about their remarriage prospects, right? And what, what would their remarriage prospects be in Moab if they stuck around there? It certainly wouldn't be to find godly men. But here again, this is the kind of thing that eyeballing it, the kind of, the kind of eyeballing it decision that Elimelech would have made. And Warren Wearsby actually goes on, it goes so far as to suggest, you know, what Naomi is do, doing here by telling her daughters-in-law, why don't you bail, is that maybe she's trying to cover up her disobedience. She doesn't want to go back to the promised land with the proof that her sons have in fact married Moabite women, like they were commanded not to. And so she's hiding the evidence, so to speak. Uh, again, I'll quote Warren Wearsby. He says, Why would a believing Jewish, a daughter of Abraham, encourage two pagan women to worship false gods? I get the impression Naomi didn't want to take Orpah and Ruth to Bethlehem because they were living proof that she and her husband had permitted their two sons to marry women from outside the covenant nation. Now, we get in a clue of Naomi's spiritual mindset uh, in verses 8 through 13, where Naomi basically says this. She's like, go home, and hopefully God treats you better than he treated me. That's basically what she says. And twice in these verses, the name Naomi uses to refer to God is El Shaddai. El Shaddai literally means the all-powerful one, and certainly God is that. That is one of his names. But Naomi's concept of God's power was that God's hand was against her. That she was a hopeless case as far as the almighty powerful God who was, you know, the little boy with the, with the magnifying glass and she was the ant, right? That's how she, she viewed God. So she's, it's a hopeless case for her that his power was only being manifested to destroy her life today. By the way, maybe some of you have had that impression of God. Maybe even this morning, that's kind of, you, you think, well, I don't know, man, I I've kind of feel like that. Here's what Naomi misunderstood. It's one thing to know God's name, but it's quite another thing to trust that name by faith and to allow God to work in the difficult situations of my life. Why? 
Because God loves you. He truly, truly loves you. God is for you. God has a plan for you. And, and God wants to bring you to the place where, you know, we proclaim with the, the, the psalmist, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my God, and, and, and I have no good apart from, from you. The Lord is my chosen portion, and he's my cup, and you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in Naomi places, in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Hey, Naomi's not there. Not yet. But nevertheless, she hears about God's blessing in the land, the promised land, back in, back in Israel. And she recognizes that she's not in a place where she can experience the blessings of God. And it motivates her to stop running and to start returning, right? She ain't there yet. She's headed in the right direction. It's been said that people either change by inspiration or desperation. She's a desperate woman here, right? And um, Romans 8, 28, we all know. It's one of the most familiar verses in the Bible. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And the idea here is that God is sovereign, and he's working providentially in every circumstance. Warren Wiersbe, or uh, Javern McGee, he said, Providence is when the hand of God is in the glove of human events. I love that quote. And that's, that's what's going on down here. And listen, that includes the circumstances of Elimelech's failures and of Naomi's heartaches and of her daughter-in-law Ruth's loss, right? God's hand is in the glove of these events. And whereas Naomi, she may not have uh, come to a genuine repentance yet, hey, we see that Ruth has. Look at verses 14 through 18. It says, Then they lifted up their voices, and they wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But In other words, she said goodbye. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You know, Ruth, return after your uh, sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts you from me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. And that doesn't mean, hey, you're dead to me. I'm not talking to you. It means she stopped arguing with her, right? She's like, fine, come on. And here we see, man, this is one of the most beautiful expressions of faithful commitment in the entire Bible. I mean, some of you may have said this at your wedding and your vows, you know, and I've heard, I've officiated weddings where, where the bride has said this to her husband. John Wolverd said this, he said, Ruth's profession is one of the most beautiful expressions of commitment in all the world's literatures. Like Abraham, Ruth decided to leave her ancestors' idolatrous land and to go to the land of promise. Ruth's decision was so strong that it included reference to death and to burial to seal the quality of her decision. Ruth invoked judgment from Israel's God and now her God. If she were to break her commitment of loyalty to her mother-in-law, Ruth's conversion was complete. 
And so in the chapter, in the, in the verses that follow here in Ruth chapter 1, and I'd include you to read the, the remaining chapters of the book, it's a very short book, what you see is an example of walking by faith, what walking by faith looks like in your, your life. And, and verses 19 through 22 kind of sets it up. So let's, we'll read it out and then we'll wrap it up. And so it says, now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, oh, is this Naomi? Is this Pleasant? Pleasant is back. And uh, she said to them, don't call me Pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Uh, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Pleasant? Since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. And so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And there's our glimmer of hope. There is a harvest that is coming. Naomi's returned bitter and she's still bitter. She thinks her life is over. She thinks God hates her. There's no hope for her. Hey, call me bitter, I went out full, and now I'm empty. And you're like, wait a minute, Naomi, you went out full? I thought you went out because there was no bread in the land. What do you mean you went out full? Here's the deal. Like so many people before her and so many people after her, Naomi can pinpoint the pain in her life, but she can't pinpoint the source. She's not there yet. She's not there yet. Right? She went out hungry because of a food famine, and she's come home empty because of a spiritual famine. And God's doing a work. She doesn't realize it yet, but she's going to. She can't pinpoint the source. She knows the pain, and God's going to connect the dots for her. <clears throat> now, in contrast to Naomi, who thinks her life is over, Ruth... Her life in the Lord has just begun. And before the story end, we're, ends, we're going to see the redemption of the Lord. <clears throat> it's going to be the best Hallmark movie ever ending that you're going to see. But the important thing here as we close it out and we wrap this up is that they're back where they belong. They're back where they belong. And even though the goal remains blurred and obscured, they don't know where their next meal's coming from. They don't really know where they're going to live. They don't know where their provisions are coming from. Ruth and Naomi are headed in the right direction. And I just close asking you the question, where are you at? What's the direction for you today? I, I do this for my church. I'm going to do it for you. Um, I like to give a few questions for you to take a walk with. And, uh, and I pray you take the time to take a walk with these questions. Uh, question number one, ask yourself this. Does God factor into the decisions that I'm wrestling with today? Does God factor in? Second question, ask yourself this. What is it that tempts me to run? And how can the story of Ruth specifically teach me how to stop running and how to stop, start returning? And here's your third question. What am I bitter about? And where do I turn to when life doesn't work out? like I had hoped. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you so much for your faithfulness and for the opportunity to look at what is a beautiful story of redemption. And Lord, all of us in this room, we have to agree that 
we eyeball things. And we shoot from the hip a lot. And Lord, I just pray that you'd have mercy on me. I'm so grateful that you're patient and long-suffering with us. For those of us who have made those eyeball decisions and who have shot from the hip uh, in the flesh and really not by the leading of the Spirit, Lord, help us to return to the land of promise, to trust in the one who promises that he'll never leave us and he'll never forsake us and the one who is so long-suffering that even, even when we blow it again, Lord, the same God who told Peter, how long or how many times must you forgive? 70 times 70, you are the God who forgives 70 times 70. Over, there's, just, there's just a wealth in you of forgiveness and redemption. And you promise if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. We pray we can walk in that newness of life by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.